Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to a special episode, episode 81 of the Brighton Rock podcast with me, Russell Garvey, your host. Um, we are welcoming back David Townsend, who made his debut a couple of weeks ago to uh, much acclaim from some of the listeners. Hello, David. How are you doing? Uh, very good, Russell. Thanks for having me on again. Um, pleased I haven't been banned yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we went fairly favourably. We'll, we'll, we'll put you on the blacklist if necessary, but I think for the moment you're OK. <laughs> and we are delighted to be joined uh, by Mr Bill Hearn, who's a, an author who has written this year um, a book called Football's Black Pioneers, which um, was released, I think, in August, Bill. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Uh, Great. And we're going to be talking to you about that. Um, welcome to the show. Very nice to have you on. Um, thanks Delighted for joining. to be on. Great, great. We look forward to talking about the book in some detail and a few other bits and pieces related. Um, so first of all, just quickly, to get a backstory, you're um, a football fan, no doubt, for a number of years now. How did it all begin for you as a supporter? Tell us a bit about that, first of all. Well, the, the origin's pretty straightforward, really. I was born in Sunderland and... Um, I've followed Sunderland all my life and you can't really change your football team, can you? You can change lots of other things, but uh, never your football team. Absolutely. So we've, uh, we've not had many highs, but the, uh, the few highs have been worth the, uh, the pain. So yeah, purely through birth. Yeah. And did you go from an early age? Is it the classic story? Dad took you along that sort of thing? Yes, my first game was Good Friday, 1965. We played Wolves, who were virtually relegated at the time. We scored in the first minute, so I think I must have thought, this is great, and we ended up losing 2-1. But uh, that was my first game. Yeah, so it didn't even last the whole match. Um, the, the, nope. the euphoria. <laughs> That's often the way it goes, isn't it? Yeah, I think I was lucky enough we had a 2-1 win in my first game. It was against Middlesbrough, actually, a team from just down the road from you guys. Um, but uh, down at the Goldstone. But uh, yeah, anyway, um, so it's so a long-standing fan, long-standing Sunderland fan. Um, and you are now, of course, um, being known for this book you've written. Um, how did you get into that? Um, have you written other stuff before? And, and how did this particular book come about? Well, no, this, this is my first book. Uh, I've co-written it with David Gleave, who can't make it tonight. He is a Palace supporter, but that isn't the reason he, he hasn't <laughs> attended. Uh, we, <laughs> we both worked together and retired at the same time and we decided to um, do some work on black history. It was military black history and we finished that and we really enjoyed it. We both love football, we both love history, so we thought, well, what next? And We were aware that the identity of the first black players were being lost to history. Um, I mean, obviously, Dave Busby is Brighton's first black player. Who knows how long we would have been able to, you know, have, have the, the knowledge to sort of resurrect Dave. Um, a lot of clubs were forgetting completely who their first black players were. So we, we identified them. But in the process of identifying them, we found that without exception, everyone had a fascinating story. 
so it developed into a, a book and uh you know it's, it's it's doing quite well and you know people seem to be enjoying it which is great a lot of people think it's very good for social history uh education a lot of people are saying schools should have it uh, but more than anything i think it's a football book that i want people to enjoy hmm. Yeah, and it certainly looks very interesting. I mean, it's a book about every one of the 92 clubs currently, um, as of this season's um, 92, I'm assuming that is. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, David, if you uh, knew, but um, I, I hadn't, must admit, I hadn't heard of um, Dave, Dave Bosby as our first black British player, a uh, black, black Brighton player, I should say, um, until um, we started talking to you, Bill, about the, the book and we looked into it and... Um, found a little bit out but I don't think you, you'd heard of him either David had um, at the time. No and I would have certainly been and I think I think he he made one appearance as far as I'm aware from what I've read in in the uh, 72-73 season or maybe the previous season. He, he um, made his debut October 73 just before ah, Brian okay. Clough arrived. Ah okay well I, I would certainly have been if, he, if it was a home debut then I would have probably been to the match but I have to say I don't have any recollection of it um and you know when I was talking to Russell before about this um you know both of us thought that that, that perhaps Chris Ramsey was our our, our first yeah. black player although um you know that was that was actually a decade later and um, he appeared in the uh the cup final against Man United um in 83 um but Busby, I, I, I don't right. remember. I have well, to. If, if you want to reminisce, it was a 2 0 home win against Shrewsbury, and the Brighton team was Brian Powney in goal. Yeah. Uh, John Templeman, George Lay. I remember George Lay. Ronnie Howell. Yeah, Portsmouth. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Norman Gall. Yeah. Steve Piper, who was a good friend of Dave Busby's. Barry mm-hmm. Bridges, the old England international. Yeah. Uh, John Boyle, I think, was on loan to you when it was John Boyle that came off to let Dave make his debut as a oh, sub. From, uh, from Chelsea, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Ken Beamish, I remember Ken. Uh, Eddie yeah. Spirit and Peter O'Sullivan. Yeah. So it was a pretty, pretty good team, that. So. Yeah, and, uh, you know, O'Sullivan played for the um, the club for over over a decade. Because um, right. he was certainly around in the uh, in the top flight Um so uh, and started, I think, in in 1970. Um, but yeah, I I don't have a recollection of the match. I have I have to say, some I remember very clearly from that era. But um, um, it's possible that I didn't go to it. But you know, um, I I would have at that time I I would have gone to virtually every every home game. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, in, in, interesting, interesting. It was something that you know hadn't crossed my radar until until recently. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to know what would have happened because it seemed as if Brighton were introducing a, a youth policy. But then, of course, Brian Clough came along and Peter Taylor, you know, they, they bought lots of players, didn't they? So I think that probably set the younger players back a bit. So he didn't play again for, a, for virtually a year. And then only yeah. um, two sub appearances and one full game at Black. It was a way to Blackburn. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that you perhaps didn't see him or, or, or didn't, didn't particularly take note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's um, and it, you know, I suppose it's only in 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 recent years actually that Brighton have started to bring through youth players in in quantities. Before, I think you would agree, Russell. You know, it's been pretty slow process, but now, you know, obviously, now we've got an academy and uh, bringing a lot more through and getting getting they're getting their chance in the first team. Whereas in those days, that that really wasn't the case. Um, uh, there were some home, homegrown um talent but um most most players came came from other clubs yeah i certainly would agree with that and um i mean it's interesting that we've we've mentioned that dave was somebody i mean it was a bit before my time to be fair so i didn't i started going in 79 but i had a guess i would have said chris ramsey um just purely from not having heard of any from the previous era when i'd looked through past records and things like that but um i'm wondering if this story because it was um probably a um, a, a significantly interesting moment when a black player makes his first appearance, but it was also happening across the country in times that were very different to now. I'm wondering if it happened very minimally at a lot of clubs. I wonder if a lot of supporters who are older enough to remember um, won't actually remember because of the same situation, just a minimal number of appearances, perhaps. Did you, did you find that when you were researching much, Bill? 
Well, yeah, the the seventies was the probably the seventies and the well seventies was the decade when the more most clubs played their first black player. I think by the time Brighton played Dave Busby, there were about thirty clubs that not yet fielded a black player. So it was it was a kind of a groundswell, really, and you know the black players were just starting to come through. And of course, racism and crowd violence was increasing at the same time as well through the seventies and eighties. I don't know whether it's coincidental or not. Um, but yes, Brighton were pretty typical. Hmm. Yeah, and the timing of this book is interesting. There's obviously a lot of talk at the moment uh, in relation to the state of football in terms of um, whether there's institutional racism, um, whether there's a, a lack of opportunity, lack of diversity. All those issues have come to the fore, and obviously in this this particular year, we've seen. Black Lives Matter movement. So the, so the subject is very prevalent at the moment in general. Um, I, th- I think so. I think it's a very timely moment as it, as it happens to, to bring the book out. And I, I think it's going to provide a lot of interest to people. In terms of um, the, uh, the most interesting stories, I mean, we'll, we'll get into maybe a little bit more on Dave in particular and Dave Osby in a minute. But what were the, um, what were the most interesting stories in relation to how players were received um when they made their debuts i mean was it was it commonly a, a story of racist abuse happening not, not always um I, inter- I interviewed chris kamara and he wasn't even aware that he'd been the first black player at swindon he did suffer lots of uh, racist abuse um but not from his own fans i mean n- n- only paul canaville at chelsea really received abuse from his own fans i mean that that was excessive um, Tony Cunningham, Sheffield Wednesday, told me that he felt that the fans forgave him for being black because he played for their side, whereas the opposition fans would, would give him a lot of abuse. So, um, I mean, Viv, Viv Anderson tells the story of how he, um, he was warming up on the sidelines at Newcastle and he was getting pelted with fruit and he went back to the manager, it was uh, Alan Brown at the time, and he said, boss, I don't, I don't want to go out there, I really can't go out there. He says, well, you're going to have to because this is life. And if you don't go out there, I'm going to choose somebody else. So I said to Viv, what would have happened if you'd walked off? He says, the following Monday, I would have been at Labour Exchange looking for a job because mm. the, the black player's got no support whatsoever, uh, unlike today. Whereas if, if there was abuse, I think the players would be able to walk off and get protected and, and defended. So mm. at different times. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, it, it, we've had Black, um, I think it's Black British History Month, is it? Is that what it's called? The, um, recently, October, Black History Month. October, yeah. yeah. Um, there was actually an article, which I, I'd missed at the time, and um, I've been a bit behind on keeping up to date with the Albion website, but David sent me a link to um, an article, I think it's from the 20th of October, uh, which was entitled, Busby Albion Supporters Were Tip Top, he says. And there's a picture, which I'll show you while we're talking, of... Uh, of the player himself just on the on the website um and uh yeah i mean essentially uh, it does seem in our case thankfully that um generally the reception he received was favorable it seemed to be quite positive and in the article he goes on to describe how he was quite surprised to be recognized on the bus as the player who had made this appearance for the albion after after his first match yeah. after his debut um and it was all favorable and encouraging stuff so um, yeah. that's I, I interviewed Dave, yeah. and mm. you know you, you can't have a nicer man for your first black player. I mean, a, re- a real nice guy, um, larger than life. Unfortunately, he's, he's had coronavirus very, very seriously, and he was put in a coma for two months. But the great news is he survived, and he's on the road to recovery. But he he didn't um, suffer any abuse from the Brighton fans, that's for sure. But he did, in, in town he did, you know, he, he had moments when he had to sort of hide because he was going to get beaten up. And he was certainly warned away from um, having a, a white girlfriend. The parents uh, told him to, to go away. So in, in, in life, in the, in the town, he did suffer racism. But um, on the pitch, he felt that he got kicked more than anybody else. And, and sometimes they were reluctant to pass the ball to him. But, um, you know, just a, a very, very nice guy. Um, you know, I, I interviewed so many different players. I mean, Tony Ford made over a thousand appearances. There's Dave Busby only made the one full game. You know, whole, yeah, whole, whole range. 
Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Um, really is a range, isn't it? Um, yeah. David, sorry, were you going to say something? <clears throat> yeah, no, I was. I was just going to say, you know, about because um, obviously, you know, I I started watching the Albion in '69 uh, was was my first match. Um, so, you know, I, I was there throughout until I went to university. I was there throughout most of the, the 70s, I guess, until, until the late 70s. And, um, um, you know, I, I have to say it was it was certainly a minority, but there, there was a section in the crowd. And if uh, an opposing black player um, appeared, you know, um, they would they would get abuse, um, you know, monkey chants, you know. Um, but I have to say, you know, it was... You know, shocking though that is, it was a, it was a very, as far as I was aware, it was a very small minority. But I think I think Russell will probably remember the last ever game at the Goldstone Ground in '97. Um, the game was against Doncaster Rovers, and uh, Darren Moore, who subsequently became the West Brom boss, um, was was playing for um, uh, for Doncaster, and and he, uh, I think, a banana was thrown on onto the pitch, and that. So, you know, the problem hadn't been eradicated by even by the late 90s. Um, but, you know, I have to say that 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 by that time, that was really exceptional, you know. Um, and, um, you know, it's still shocking, obviously. Um, and, and, and I also remember in that match, he he, he got sent off with um, Ian Baird. Um, you know, they had a running fight, as I seem to remember, in the first first 20 minutes, and both of them got sent off. So it was quite fight, an that. Match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, certainly in terms of it's never been more prevalent um, in recent times than it is now. Um, it did feel for quite a while, didn't it, from probably the noughties onwards, maybe maybe before that as well a little bit, that racism had gone under the radar. It never, of course, it never goes away, but it, it had become a lot more socially unacceptable through the years to, um, to openly um, practice any kind of racist behaviour. Um, obviously, in the, in, the, in the recent years, that's now just risen back up. There's, I think there's a lot more divisions created within society in general. And as we've often said, you know, football does reflect society. Um, it's come back in, in, in big, big time, hasn't it? And there was um, even the Raheem Sterling incident um, where he was not just the racial abuse he received in the game at Chelsea, but also the articles that were written about, you know, the, the, the different language used, the different perspective used to describe this young footballer spending money as opposed to a white footballer. Um, even that with the outrage that was subsequently caused and all the measures that have gone in place to try and eradicate, to kick it out, that have gone since. We still had, just the other day, um, the Daily Mail doing another article, very similar to the Raheem Sterling thing, about Marcus Rashford, um, which was an absolute disgrace. Um, you know, it just shows, again, the brazenness that even off the back of the fairly recent criticism of, I think it was the Sun newspaper, did the Sterling article, I think. Um, but, you know, even off the back of that and the criticism that received, the males still feel quite comfortable in this current environment to, mm -hmm. to put out a pretty much identical article saying, well, he's complaining about um, the government should pay, but why doesn't he pay? He's got five luxury homes. So, you know, he's a sensible investor, isn't he? Yeah. He's entitled to spend his money how he wants. Well, what's your view on that before we get back into some of the older stuff, Bill, in terms of how you see the status at the moment? Well, I, th I think the attack on Rashford was predictable, wasn't it? Um, you know, would put him back in his box, probably type of, of attitude. Um, but I don't think it'll win the day. I mean, I think Rashford's got the admiration of everyone in the country. Um, mm. we, we started writing this book in 2016. People say it's very well timed, but it, it isn't. You know, we, we spent four years writing it. And we, we have commented to footballers that, um, you know, it seems to have got worse in the four years since we started writing. And without exception, they say it might have appeared that way, Bill, but it never really went away. So it's probably easy for us as three white guys. Um, you know, we, 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 we don't know whether it's going on or not or suffering from it. But the, um, the black players I've interviewed say it never actually went away. It just appeared that way. Yeah. Well, David, sorry. Yeah, back to you. Yeah, so I was, I was just going to say, and I think one... Um, you know, chink, chink of light perhaps is is that, you know, um, fans, you know, if there is abuse in the stadium now, that fans will will call it out and report it. Um, 
whereas I don't think that that would have happened in the 70s, quite frankly. And, you know, um, it would be questionable whether anything would have been done about it, even if it had been called out. Um, so I think that's that's progress of a sort. But, you know, I, 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 I would agree that there, there's, even, even if it's not overt sometimes, there's still, there's still undercurrents there. Yeah. Well, what the players in the 70s were told was to just grin, grin bear it. You, you know, it's a fact of life. You're black. You're going to get racist abuse. Don't react because you'll just make it worse. Whereas now I think the attitude is don't accept it. Don't put up with it. Uh, so it, it's been a complete shift there. But Chris Kamara was a good example. He um, he got himself into a bit of bother. Um, he was playing for. Yeah, it was Swindon he was playing for. And he hit another player and he broke his jaw. And his manager, Lou Macari, found out that the reason that Chris Macari did it was because he'd been getting a lot of racist abuse and he just, he just lost it in the end. And Macari's attitude was, look, you're black, it's a fact of life, get on with it, I'm going to fine you X amount, you know, I'm going to punish you for doing that, instead of saying, right, we're going to defend you, Chris. So mm. attitudes have changed in that respect. Mm. Yeah. Um, incidentally, just on the Daily Mail, it's Andy Buckwell and Max Hutchison are the uh, writers of that article. You absolute disgrace to your trade, guys. Um, just wanted to get that one in. Um, moving back to um, some of the other earlier interviews, um, I mean, first of all, you mentioned Huddersfield. It was an interesting one, wasn't it, um, when we were talking off air just, just before, Bill? Tell us about that one. Yeah, Huddersfield's first black player is a guy called Lloyd Maitland. He uh, was born in Birmingham and he, he wasn't really happy there. He, fe he felt there was a lot of racism and he was only too happy to sign for Huddersfield as a youth. And he played for Huddersfield's best ever youth side. He got into, he even got trials for England. He was the only black guy in, in these particular England trials and he felt it was a bit cliquish. He didn't get into the, uh, the full team, but he, he was doing very, very well for Huddersfield and um, eventually moved on to Darlington. And while he was at Darlington, he played against Huddersfield and he scored. Well, he'd been training with Huddersfield because he didn't want to move to Darlington. And on the Monday when he went back to Huddersfield to train, the manager, Mick Buxton, said, look, you're not welcome here anymore. And he, he refused to let him train in the, in the ground, which I thought was petty beyond belief. But Lloyd went back to Darlington, played his football, um, got to the close season and him and a couple of his teammates decided to go out to Harrogate for the day. So they went out and uh, probably had a couple of drinks. And on the way back, Lloyd needed to relieve himself. So they, they stopped the car, he got out, and they thought it would be funny to drive off and leave him on this country lane in the middle of nowhere. So all he could do was, was walk on and hope they could flag a car down or whatever. Anyway, his teammates thought better of it, so they turned around and decided to pick him up. Well, just as they were coming back, he was coming over the brow of a hill and they hit him. And they smashed both of his legs really, really badly. And they bundled him into the car, took him to Harrogate Hospital, basically threw him out and, and left him there and drove off. And poor Lloyd never played again. And it was doubly tragic because his contract had expired with Darlington. So he, he had no job with Darlington. He, he would have been signed. He was, he was a great player. And he was also on the verge of possibly signing for Sunderland. But clearly Sunderland didn't want him any longer. So he was left without... Uh, a job. Um, fortunately, he'd been training as a plasterer and he became a plasterer after his football life and, and, and did really, really well. But it was a tragic end to a promising career. But the thing that got me was Lloyd, Lloyd didn't have a, an, an ounce of bitterness in him. You know, one of the many, many lovely players that I, uh, I got to interview. But um, sad story. Mm. Yeah, it's an amazing story, really. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? And mm. um, just all from a, effectively from a prank. Mm. Um, ah, just a tragedy, it certainly is. Um, one of the very interesting character, and one that some listeners may have heard of, um, it's a more familiar name, is uh, Walter Tull. I recently saw the documentary, I think it was actually from 2008 originally, the BBC documentary on him. About his uh, his career, he started with Spurs, didn't he? Later played more prominently for Northampton but also um, worked his way up to an NCO level, although not officially. <laughs> there, was, there was a bit of an issue, wasn't there, with that? Um, in World War I, and unfortunately, tragically, right towards the end of the war, uh, was, was killed. So he would have come back and continued his football career. But, um, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's obviously going, that's one of the earlier ones. Um, do yeah. you, I mean, what, what, 
what's your take on that? Well, what what Atul was, um, he had a, a tough upbringing. He, he was brought up in an orphanage. His, um, his, his parents died when he was young. And he obviously was a very good footballer. He joined Spurs eventually. And there was one particular game at Bristol City where he suffered the most horrendous abuse. And Spurs didn't really know how to handle this. And I think they were quite happy to pass him on to Northampton later, where, as you say, he did very well. Uh, just as war broke out, he was on the verge of signing for Glasgow Rangers. He had a brother lived in, in Glasgow as well, a dentist, oddly enough. I think the first black dentist in, in Scotland. Right. But he went off to war. He did become a second lieutenant. He, uh, he, he was officially an, an officer. He wasn't the first black officer, but there's a, oh, right. he's, often, he's often said to be such. There were a few before that. Uh, tragically lost his life. The double tragedy is he was recommended for a military cross and he never got that military cross. And there's still movements even now to try and get him the, the military cross that he'd, uh, he'd been recommended for. So, yes, he's a, a very, very famous player, probably about the fifth black player in the, in the English league. Um, Arthur Wharton was the first. And then Scots started coming in. Obviously, early football, were, were, Scottish players were, were dominating. Um, a guy called, um, well, probably Willie Clark of Aston Villa, Aston Villa's first black player. He was the third black player to play in the Football League, but he was the first one to score a goal. So he was the first black player when he when he scored for Aston Villa on Christmas Day in 1901. Um, he also was the first black player to win a medal. He, he, he won the second division with Bradford City. So he's a, a big figure in black British history, but not often not often remembered, whereas Walter Tull is is well remembered. With Walter Tull, I mean, in the documentary, they were saying that he was he was recommended um, for the yeah the officer um, post, and then um, I think there's something written into the handbook that says that you the the players the, the people that were were there had to be either um, just white English or they had to be of white European backgrounds if they were immigrants uh, something like that wasn't it so they had to ignore the official rule to get him that officership yeah which probably shows what a, a great man he was to uh, to get that sort yeah. of recognition yeah it's no mean feat and i think that's partly the issue isn't it I, i'm guessing as to why that wasn't awarded that medal I'm, I'm assuming it was then it brings to light the fact that he'd been the rules have been bent um, to allow him to be the officer yeah um you mentioned arthur wharton as well he's another name that people may know um tell us a bit more about him where, where did he make his first appearance well arthur wharton was um preston north end's <clears throat> first black player uh back in 1886 before the football league had even started all oh, right he, he, wow. he was a goalkeeper uh all-round sportsman he was brilliant at everything he did he brought the world record for the 100 yards uh, I think he was a great cyclist, rugby player, whatever he touched, really, he, he was good at. He appeared in the Football League for Rotherham Town, who had no relation to the current Rotherham United, but he then became Sheffield United's first black player. He only played the one game in 1895, and that was at Sunderland, and it wasn't even at Roker Park. It was the ground that preceded Roker Park. It's that long ago. Um, so Arthur Wharton is a... You know, very, very famous figure. There's a statue of him that um, is at St George's Park at Burton, where the, where the England training facilities are. Uh, so, you know, a, a well-remembered person. Like, like many, he died. Uh, he, was, he was buried in a pauper's grave because these people weren't really celebrated during their lifetime. It's only recently mm. that they're getting uh, any sort of publicity. But yes, Arthur Wharton always will be a key figure as the first black player in, in England. Yeah. Um, I think actually speaking of Walter Toll earlier, I think there's a recent statue, hasn't, hasn't there been put up at Sixfields, the Northampton? There, there is a statue of them there, yeah. Uh, it's good some of these things are now happening at least and, and getting yeah. the posthumous in, in their case. Uh, of course, it's on a postage stamp as well, which is pretty impressive, you know, to... Uh... Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> Not bad at all, yeah. Um, who, I'm curious to know actually, who was the last club to have a black player? I'm sure you've had this question asked before. <laughs> well, okay. Do you want to, do you want to guess? Because you I'm going to get I'm, it. I'm going to guess an obvious one. I'm going to go for Burnley. David, do you want to go? 
That's controversial. Um, I was I was thinking of Burnley myself for some reason. I don't know why. They <laughs> don't have um, Burnley in their teams at the moment, put that way. Uh, ironically, given the name Blackburn, perhaps. Well done. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, um, when was that? It was Blackburn. It was in the night. What was it? Was Howard Gale? And it was uh, 1987. Oh, he, he played for Liverpool as well, didn't he? He was uh, Liverpool's first black player. He was Newcastle's yeah. first black player. He was Liverpool's um, first black player, was he? 1987, he made his debut for Blackburn. But Burnley were not much earlier. But yeah. the thing about Burnley is they did actually have a black player in, in the 1930s who never played for Burnley, but they sold him to Southampton. And he became Southampton's first black player. So it's easy to jump to conclusions that, you know, perhaps black players were excluded from certain clubs. But in Burnley's case, even though their, their first black player was 1984, Les Lawrence, uh, they did have a, a black player called Alf Charles, a Trinidadian, on their books in, in the 1930s. Hmm. Um, another one of some particular interest to me, I think you mentioned it when we first uh, conversed, actually, Bill, and... Um, I, I don't know if you picked up on this as well, David, is um, the first black Busby babe as well, or the only black Busby the babe. The only black Busby babe, yeah. Yeah, which is uh, Dennis Walker, isn't it? Can you tell us Dennis. about him? Yeah, yeah, Dennis Walker. He, he was an oddity because we, we knew that he was um, I, I, Iranian. His father was Iranian. And we thought, well, that, that, isn't, that isn't African. You know, we were looking for African-Caribbean. Uh, but apparently in Iran enslavement was legal until the late 1920s and there were a lot of Africans taken from Africa to Iran to be to be enslaved so we, we know that's where uh, Dennis you know the, the black side of Dennis came from his mother was an Irish lady a white Irish lady um, he was good enough to be the only black Busby babe he would have been there at the time of Munich obviously he didn't uh, he didn't travel but uh, he would have been there um, he only played one game. It was at Nottingham Forest in 1963. And it was the Monday before the FA Cup final when Manchester United played Leicester. And Matt Busby was, was resting players like Charlton and Law. Right. So Dennis, Dennis got a game. And, and obviously now a very historic game because he became the first black player to play for, for Manchester United. He later went to Cambridge United where he became their first black player. He had a spell at York. But the strange thing about York is they, they'd already had, I think it was only about the fourth black player at York, um, whereas many teams had never, ever fielded a black player uh, at that time. He's yeah. now going to be remembered. There's um, a kind of a memorial for him at the Manchester United training ground, which would have been um, opened or unveiled had it not been for the, for the virus. So, you know, he, he's been commemorated. One of the reasons that he... He sort of, his claim to fame is that after he retired, he became the manager of the Armdale Centre at um, in Manchester, the huge shopping centre at Manchester. And in 1996, the IRA planted the biggest bomb seen in mainland Britain since World War II. And Dennis was largely responsible for evacuating the Armdale Centre. Big decision to make because I, I, I imagine they get lots of hoaxes. So it's a big decision, and he, you know, he helped make it. And, and the bomb went off and nobody was killed. So, you know, in, in that respect, he's, an, he's a hero as well. Uh, sadly, yeah. he died um, a while back, but, uh, you know, an important figure in Manchester United history. Yeah, that's very, um, very interesting. That. Uh, go on, David. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, sorry to, to interrupt. Um, yeah, and I, I read that he was, he was actually blown across the street for his troubles mm. into a shop window or something like that uh, that's right yeah yeah so a real real hero brave, yeah brave man, yeah 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 that's what that's what i was going to say actually it's yeah. the same thing because so, I, yeah. I i think the um the bbc had picked up that story hadn't they that was where I, I i read that recently and i wasn't sure if they had they taken that from your your book well if they did they didn't ask <laughs> oh okay <laughs> but yeah we, obviously we had a lot of help from footballers, but we had a lot of help from their families as well. And Dennis's family were really, really helpful in, uh, in giving us the, the background and so on. Yeah. Well, I haven't read your book yet. So it's on order, but I, I have read um, 
the article that you uh, there was an extract in the Guardian, wasn't there, on the subject of of um, Dennis, and it was also talking about uh, what to read it. You said a lot of people, including Viv Anderson, when we interviewed him, think that Tony Whelan was United's uh, black pioneer, but then um, it was in fact um, Dennis. Um, and Remy Moses was the uh, was the second one, uh, quite some time later, wasn't he? Um, do, do you think? A lot of the players who you interviewed, who were the first black players, didn't realise they were? Because you mentioned one or two before, but do you think that was a common thread? Um, I'm wondering how well commemorated it was at the time, in other words. Yeah, I, I, th I think being the first wasn't anything that was recognised. As I mentioned, Chris mm. Kamara didn't know he was the first black player at Swindon. Yeah. E even though the, the newspaper cut-ins that he brought along would refer to Swindon having signed a coloured player for the first time. So it was kind of out there, but I don't think the players were particularly conscious. Really, all they wanted to do was play football. And, and that's the message that kept coming back. You know, we just wanted to play football. Um, so I guess it wasn't a big thing to them. But, you know, the, the identity of the first black player, I mean, it, it leads, for example, it, it leads isn't the obvious one. I mean, a lot of people thought mm. Albert Johansson was the first black player to play in England, let alone Leeds, but he wasn't even the first black player to play for Leeds. There was a, a, a guy called Jerry Francis, a South African, who was there before Albert. Right. So, you know, and, and likewise, it's easy to think it might be Tony Whelan at Manchester United because people had forgotten about Dennis Walker. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think when you when you have those minimal number of appearances, that certainly helps blur the waters, doesn't it? I think in the memory. Yeah. Um other ones, I mean, I can't remember what you mentioned. Sunderland's itself, your your team, who who was the first black player there? Sunderland's was a player called Rolly Gregoire. We bought him from Halifax around the, in, in the mid-70s, mid to late 70s. He's a very young boy. We only paid £5,000 for him. And yet we placed him in a, a difficult situation. There, aren't, you know, there, there weren't many black people in Sunderland as a whole at that time. And I think those black players should have been better looked after. We should have tried harder to understand um, differences, for example. I've interviewed Sunderland players and said, oh yeah, I remember Rowley, he was very quiet, very very sort of shy guy. Mm -hmm. And we don't know now what, why he was shy. Perhaps he just felt he didn't fit in. And I don't think managers probably were aware enough to nurture these players. Now, one exception was Len Ashurst, who was a Sunderland manager. And when he signed Gary Bennett, he'll insist, he said, I only signed Gary Bennett because he was a great player. But I also bought Howard Gale because I felt having two black players together, they might be able to support one another. And it, of course, he said, I wouldn't have signed Howard Gale, he'd not, not been a good player. But he was determined to, you know, to settle these players in and to, uh, to overcome racism. So, you know, I got a lot of time for Len Ashurst in that respect. Um, Rowley is not well remembered at Sunderland. He was, as I say, a young kid. He was thrown into a cauldron of a match. Uh, it was Easter and Sunderland were going for promotion. And it was one of those games, you know, where you concede an early penalty and then spend the rest of the game trying to, to claw the game back. And Rowley got, sac you know, he, the, the press were horrific uh, in criticising him. And he was only 20. And, you know, he, he never, well, he never recovered from that, really. He, he played hardly hardly any more games. So I, I think, another example is Brendan Batson. Brendan Batson made his debut at Newcastle, of all places. I mean, that, that was quite a racist place to be in, in 1972. And Bertie Mee told him to go and warm up. And he must have stood out like a sore thumb. But he'd be the only black person in that ground, including the, including the crowd. And I just looking back, I think Bertie Mee... Had you thought about it a little bit more, you might have given him his debut at Highbury and, you know, you might have just protected him a little bit more. But I don't think anybody was conscious of, um, of, of any differences, which could be a good thing, but, you know, perhaps a bit insensitive. Mm, yeah, indeed. I think that's a good, uh, certainly some good thinking when you're talking about Len Ashurst in terms of getting another player in who can maybe... He's a sort of, if you like, the burden of feeling left out um, and feeling isolated. I mean, even today, in other respects, that's a thing, isn't it? We've we've seen players abroad, another maybe another player from Spain overall. In our case, we had a couple of Israeli players, interestingly, who who were friends from the national team, um, and maybe that sort of thing does help 
settle people down. I think that's a perfectly logical idea. Good thinking, I think. Um, but speaking about the North East, you've mentioned Newcastle as well, your, your dear friends from up the road uh, and yourselves. What, what about Darlington? Because I've got a couple of mates who both listen to the show um, and they're both Darlow fans. Um, who was Darlington's first player out of interest? Well, Arthur Wharton lived in Darlington and he played for, he, he played representative football in Darlington, but not, I understand, for the, well, not the current Darlington team, but even, even the Darlington team that was in the league. Yeah. So I, I suspect the first black player for Darlington in the league would be Lloyd Maitland, the guy we mentioned earlier from Huddersfield. Mm. So I'm pretty sure Lloyd would have been the first black player there. He certainly was the only black player in the northeast, the whole, the whole northeast, when he was playing for Darlington. So you know it was quite a, a rarity. So unless any Darlington supporters know better, uh, I'd, I'd plump for Lloyd Maitland. Excellent, that's good knowledge because we're going way beyond the ninety-two there with that question. <laughs> so fair play on that. Um, and David, I don't know if you've got any uh, particular ones you wanted to, uh, um, to pick Bill's brains about in terms of um, clubs of interest for you as well. Yeah, well. Um, I just wanted to ask about another Albion, actually, the um, West Brom, and and obviously, you know, the era of the, the late seventies when when you had Cunningham, um, Regis, and 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 Batson um, as, as well at West Brom. Um, three amigos, when they called, is that right? Uh, three, three degrees. degrees. Oh, three, three degrees. degrees. Yeah. Three degrees. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that that was a that was a fantastic. Um, team and it and it kind of saddened me, you know, when the re- revelations about Ron Atkinson came out, and I was, you know, surprised surprised about that because um, he, um, you know, I'd always enjoyed his watching his teams, um, you know, from a from a footballing point of view. I thought he had some very attractive teams, and that West Brom side was was uh, was very good to watch. Um, so I was just wondering if you had any any thoughts about that because it struck me as odd that you know he would actually he he was Atkinson was quite a pioneer in that respect um, and yet as we know you know his uh, his reputation has been has, has sadly been tainted. Yeah, I mean the the only slight comment I've had on it is that he wasn't a racist, but he shouldn't be forgiven for what he said. Which sounds like a contradiction, but that, that's that's what I've been told. Um, I mean, yeah, just a very, very strange contradiction, isn't it? That you should be such a supporter of black footballers and yet then use the language that he did. I guess, you know, is it, was it just a case of his age and the time? Um, I don't know, but... Uh, but I mean, what, what is interesting, Laurie Cunningham was West Brom's first black player. He just beat Regis and Batson to that to that title. But Laurie Cunningham was at Arsenal before that. And just to give you an idea of how people stereotype black players, an article from 1975 here says that Arsenal allowed Cunningham to go because they thought he lacked courage. Now, did he really lack courage or was this a perception that black players lack, lack courage? Because... The article goes on to talk about um, Eddie Corker, the West Ham striker, um, who I thought was quite a powerful guy. But Queen's Park Rangers released him because, let's see, um, temperamental insufficiency when the pressure is on. And I just can't imagine a white player being released from a club with the, the reason being that he's got temperamental insufficiency when the pressure is on. So you do wonder about stereotyping and mm. as I said, the article goes on that black players will, 1975 this is, black players will never play for England because they're no good at physical contact. They're no good at, the barricade would get them down. English conditions, they're only any good when the sun shines on, the, on their backs. Uh, temperament. And of course, three years later, um, Viv Anderson was playing for England and last month, England played their 100th black international so things have certainly moved on oh but, yeah. right so so Viv Anderson was the first I think is that right Let's see he was the first for the full England team yeah, yeah. Hmm. but the very first black player to represent England was a, a guy called John Charles of West Ham back in 1962 and for hmm. one re- for some reason he's never really remembered as such Laurie Cunningham was the first one to play for the under 21s and uh, you know Viv for the Viv for the full team 
Yeah. Sorry, go on. Russell. Um, I, I was going to ask about West Ham actually, because I, you know, remember um, Clyde Best, um, you know, from the late 60s, 70s, I guess. He, he was still around in the 70s, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd assumed that he was probably West Ham's first player because, um, you know, obviously West Ham as a, as, as a club have had, had problems with, with racism. Um, Although I would say, say generally, obviously, I, I suppose, um, you know, because of the makeup of London, I would suppose that London clubs have, were, were, you know, had more black players at that time. It was just my, my, my perception anyway. I don't know if that's, if that's correct. Well, yeah, I mean, West Ham are a very, very interesting one because I agree with your perception about them having problems with, with racism. Amazingly enough, they were the first club to field three black players in the same same team. They beat West Brom to that by, I think, about five years. And the, and the three they played was um, Eddie Corker, Clyde Best, and a guy called Clive Charles, who was John Charles's brother. So in 1972, they had three black players in the same side. And what's doubly ironic is that Jack Leslie, the player you might have heard of from the 1920s, he's the man that was picked for England and then dropped when the selectors discovered he was black. Jack he was Leslie West actually Ham. worked in the boot room at West Ham. So it's kind of poignant to think that Jack Leslie was getting the boots ready for three black players that were going to play in, in, in the same game. And it's possible he even got the boots ready for John Charles, who took Jack Leslie's mantle as, as the first black player to play for, play for England. So, it, but it, just going back to the question of West Ham's first black player, we think it's a man called Fred Corbett, who played in the, just the turn of the about early 1900s. And there's a little bit of dispute as to whether he really was black or not. Um, we've worked very, very hard to try and prove it one way or the other. We think he was, um, and, and he's the guy we've opted for in, in the West Ham chapter. But we've also given the option, you know, if you don't accept Fred Corbett was black, John Charles is the is the next one. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, just there the 100th black player to play for England. It was that um, Jude Bellingham then? He made a it debut. Was Rhys James? Is it Rhys James? Oh, Rhys James. Okay. Yeah. 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 Mm. I'm, much better, I'm much better at football from the 1900s <laughs> than I am from last month. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, the memories can play tricks, can't they? Um, interesting, you mentioned about language as well, because I think that's still an issue even today, where uh, descriptions of, of black players being uh, pacey, strong, powerful, um, athletic. Those kind of words are often used to describe them, but not very often words that can often be attributed to white players, like players with guile, a bit of um, you know ingenuity, or, or some, something to do with the cerebral matters more that's another stereotype that i think still to some degree prevails today would you would you agree with that notion well um i mean the, the, this is a criticism of crystal palace so you, you're welcome this oh, go ahead. Ron, Ron, Ron nords very very famously said that black players didn't you know they're all very well black players but they haven't really got the brains and they haven't got the the bottle he didn't use those words but that that's more or less what he said hmm. and yet if, if I can just use one example, Tony Cunningham, who was a striker in the 70s, he played, I think, 700 games. He got a degree in engineering. He is a solicitor. You know, and, and there's just no evidence to support the, the kind of ideas or the stereotypes that, that Ron Nords had. Um, yeah. I mean, even in the, in the women's game, Annie Luco, I think, is a lawyer, isn't she? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and so to, it, it makes me cringe to think of Patrice Evra patronising the applause on TV when she was making a point during, I think, the World Cup or the Euros tournament. And you just think, oh, <laughs> well, he's making mindless kind of YouTube videos or whatever it is he's doing. Yeah. You know, it's, well, it's, the, the book's full of footballers who play yeah. 600, 700 games, usually up front, usually when the, when the tackle from behind was still allowed and so on, quite often in the lower divisions. So, you know, there's no difference between black and white players in terms of resilience. You, you get yeah. And yeah. You, you mentioned earlier, you know, that, that um, uh, sorry, I can't remember which, which player it was, but they, you know, 
that they that they would be targeted more by by the opposition you know in terms of being fouled and is that something that that came across in uh, in a lot of your uh, interviews yes you did get the odd occasion where they'll say well they would be reluctant to pass to me even teammates um, you know, it would be a last resort. They'd rather not pass to me if, unless they had to. And I have that at school, that. actually, Bill. I have that at school, but I think that might be a very different reason. Yeah. <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dave, Dave Busby did say that uh, he felt in training he got kicked a lot more than the other players and um, there was a reluctance to pass to him. He had a trial at Derby County when Derby were one of the top clubs in Europe. And again, he felt there that um, he was the only black player there and he felt unwanted, and he, um, you know, that he felt that the guys weren't passing the ball to him. And Brian Clough was manager then, oddly enough. And uh, Brian Clough said to him, "Look, you're not good enough for the first division, but you, you will make a living in in perhaps the third division." And of course, when mm-hmm. Clough went to Brighton a few years later, Dave Busby reminded him of that, and. Uh, mm-hmm. He didn't get a game, though. <laughs> no, no. And, fa- and famously, Ian Wright um, uh, was on trial with uh, with Brighton, but um, wasn't oh. wasn't taken on. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm not imputing any uh, sinister motives there. I think it was this one that uh, that was overlooked. Yeah, I think we had the budget for only one player at the time, and I think I think it was Steve Penny. It might, I might be getting that wrong. Was um, was already pretty much had his foot in the door at the point where the trial took place or something like that. So it was a case of we like both players, but we can only afford one and we've kind of already bought into the into the Steve Penny acquisition. I think that's right. I might have got the, uh, the wrong player yeah. there. But uh, yeah, gutter that was. Um, still lamenting that moment, I have to say, <laughs> especially <laughs> with who he went on to star for as well. Yeah. After the <laughs> Arsenal days. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's good to hear that certainly the Dave Bosby's got over the uh, the COVID virus. I mean, that was terrible to hear he'd, he'd had it so badly. I'm glad to hear he's okay now. I mean, he's, so what, what, what age is he at at the moment? Do you know roughly? He's 64. Yeah. Uh, he still he works. Do... He's, you know, he's, uh, he's normally fit and healthy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. I mean, does he, he doesn't live in the, uh, in the Sussex area, does he? Still he lives in, uh, in London. Uh, All right. I think it's Acton or Ealing. But he's still uh, very, very fond of Brighton. He, he, he came to Brighton as a young a youth, really. He went to uh, Oak Hall School at um, Heathfield. Oh, yeah. So he, he was at, um, he's been in Sussex for quite a while um, hmm. and just moved back when, uh, moved back to London when his, um, when his Brighton career ended. Oddly oh. enough, he's his first black player at Barrow as well. So for a, one of the lesser known players, he's actually got two chapters to himself in the... Uh, in football's black pioneers, yeah. and there's a great players like Cyril Reid just don't have a single chapter. Oh dear! Oh well, he's missed out there. Yeah, that's it's... right. Because Barrow, of course, has just got promoted, so they he squeezes yeah. in on the on the two club factor there, doesn't he? Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I was going to ask was was he playing for Barrow when they were a league team, or had they already gone out? No, of the it, league? it was non-league. It was the um, non- yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they were about seventy, didn't they? Games. But maybe we should get Dave up to Seagulls over London if he could in the future. Then, if he's in London, I'll have to see if we can get him along. <laughs> He'd be very entertaining, and he's he's a nice guy. He's larger than life. Um, I had a really nice interview with him, and, and kind of kept in touch with him since then. He's, yeah. he's a credit to Brighton. Promise you. Oh, he's a fantastic! Good man. It's really really good to hear that. Excellent. That's superb. I think that's a good way to end the um, the main subject of the podcast um, on that matter. Just a couple of other small bits, though, before we finish. I mean, we've got you on. You're a, you're a Sunderland fan through and through. Got to ask you while you're on with us um, to get your opinions of the recent history at, uh, at Sunderland and and how um, how things are going at the moment because they're, they're in the news thereabouts at the moment, aren't they, with a potential takeover? Um, what, what's your view on well, how how things have gone? First of all, in the recent years. Well, I suppose. The best way of summing that up is that in our we were created in 1879. Two seasons ago, we had our worst season in, in that long history. And last season, we had an even worse season. So the two worst seasons in, in our history have, uh, are just behind us. I, we got placed eighth in, the, in League One last season. And I think that was probably a fair reflection. And I suspect that this season... I know most supporters think we'll get into the playoffs. 
I'd settle for halfway. I just think this is a season to forget and get it over with and try and rebuild. The worrying thing is the takeover seems to be pretty much the people who are running it now. So, you know, the, yeah. the, the only addition seems to be a 22-year-old Frenchman who is the son of the previous owner of Marseille, but we would still have um, Sartori, who was a Uruguayan, who was already there. And, of course, the two, um, Methven and, and Stuart and Donald. So mm. it's hard yeah. to get excited about this takeover. It's a bit odd. And we, we were saying off air before we started uh, the recording, um, but, yeah, it's just a, such a shame that the previous owner had his heart in the right place, but had essentially just squandered all the spending on the wrong wrong people at the wrong time, hadn't he? And um, by rights, it wasn't one of those things where a club's been run down by a dodgy owner. It was a case of just more just unfortunate mismanagement, wasn't it? I guess you would call it. Yeah, very, very bad appointments, both at chief executive mm. level and, and management level. And mm. you obviously, he must be a very, very talented businessman. Ellis Short is, is a you know, billionaire, um, but he made some bad, bad decisions when it came to football. Yeah. And this season, um, any hopes of the pro? Because you're, you're not too far away. I know you said you probably think we finished roughly the same. Um, I mean, I mentioned also off air that um, a certain Mr. Cameron Jerome, uh, now 34-year-old footballer, playing for MK Dons, who beat you at the weekend. I think he got the equaliser. Um, he had posted on social media, don't often tweet, but let me throw something out there. Maybe a nibble, maybe tongue-in-cheek. Um, hashtag Sunderland, hashtag... MK Dons, poor, poor side with average players for the league. It's time to accept you're now a bang average League One team. Now, glory days have gone. Let it go, Sunderland. So, blimey, that's a bit uh, an unprovoked. Um, well, I, 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 I can't imagine what Sunderland have done to have in the past to, to prompt that <laughs> yeah. sort of a reaction. Um, I, mean, I, do, I do I agree with him. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we are we are bang League One mid-table side now. We we will be back though. There's no doubt. It might not be in the next two, three, four years, but you know we will bounce back. But at the moment, yeah, we are a, a a very average League One side in every respect. Yeah, well, it's a bit out of order having it rammed home by someone. Really, yeah. I think um, he has deleted the the message since apparently, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as you can see from the fact I've read it, it's out there somewhere. <laughs> Once well, it's out we there. must have upset him sometime in the past. I've no idea how, but uh, perhaps yeah, we didn't maybe. sign him. Or... Maybe, yeah. But, well, I do wish you the best of luck um, for Sunderland in the coming, the rest of the season and the coming seasons. Um, one, one final quick bit. There's only one bit of football news really to mention this week. It's sort of related as well because it's the EFL have just agreed. I'm not sure when it starts, but they've agreed to have five subs. So that gets in line with most of the major European leagues, certainly at their top levels. Um, I think the EFL is certainly a good move myself. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, it seems a, a sensible move. I'm, I'm not a great one for changing the laws of the game too mm. often. But, but because uh, of the compressed um, schedule, isn't it, really, is the issue? Yeah, the yeah. Yeah, it, make, it makes good sense. Yeah, so, yeah. Excellent. Well, on that note, because I know you've got to go shortly, um, we'll, we'll leave it there, Bill. Thanks very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. I think we could have gone for hours asking about all sorts of clubs and um, perhaps, perhaps we'll get you back on at some point in the future. Uh, we'll also have to meet up for a drink if you're a, a meteor for a game in the future, um, in normal times, <laughs> if we get back to those again. Um, would be good. It would certainly be good to, to be in the same division again if you guys can come up to the Premier League and we could meet halfway. Uh, but <laughs> who knows what will happen. Um, but thanks very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Um, we'll maybe have to uh, chew your ear about getting uh, Dave Busby to, uh, to to join us for Seagulls over London at some point as well. But thanks very much. Thank you again to David as well. Um, hope you enjoyed your second outing for the uh, pod. I, I did indeed, Russell. Thank you. Um, thank you again for having me. And um, it was fascinating to listen to, to Bill. And um, I, I look forward to reading the, the, the book. So thanks once again to Bill for joining us. We really enjoyed the chat. Hope you enjoyed listening. Um, his name is Bill Hearn. His co-author is David Gleave, and their book, 
Football's Black Pioneers is available from all good bookshops. If you order directly through Conquer Editions, the publishers, I think you may be able to get hold of a limited edition print for free as well. With your order, the book itself costs £16 plus postage. Um, I recommend we check it out. Um, In the meantime, thanks again to Bill for joining us and also to David. And until the next time, stand or fall up the Albion. Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.